0: Uh, I'll be in First John chapter two this morning, and I'll be uh, through verses twenty four through twenty seven. Um, since I was a kid, I've had a pretty weak stomach. Um, I have, I can smell something or I can see something, and if it grosses me out, I can literally start gagging. And I've had this for a long time. I can just easily get grossed out. And friends who know me well, if If someone is, if I'm in a social setting where someone's describing some smell or some scene that has grossed them out, somebody will literally yell out, don't, you have to stop talking or Ben is going to throw up. And that's kind of how weak my stomach is. And so um, because of my weak stomach, when I was a kid, if I'd ever get sick with a cold, um, there was only like one type of cough medicine that I could have that did not literally make me throw up. And my brother, my oldest brother, Pete, um, was watching me one week as my parents were away. Uh, My dad was traveling through his uh, business, and he was away for weeks. My oldest brother, Pete, was there watching me. And he knew that I had this um, sort of um, OCD kind of, I I have to have this medication if I'm going to be feeling better, and it only can be that one. He knew that I was like that, but he thought I was just being a baby, so he went out, and knowing that I had a cold, knowing that I'm, like, weird with, like, smells and stuff like that, he comes home with this knock-off brand of what I, what I, the, the one thing I could take was Robitussin cherry-flavored, and it still grosses me out, but that's the only thing I could stomach. Like, you got to, like, almost make me unconscious to take it, but that's like the only thing, and he got this kind of like, I don't know what it was, it was I think it just said cough medicine, TM, like cause I think that's kind of what it was, and he didn't tell me that's what it, he didn't tell me that he got the knockoff brand, but he pours it into the little shot glass measuring cup that you get, and he tells me, okay, this is, uh, this is rubber tuss and cherry, and he said, you're going to be, you know, just, just stop being a baby and take it. And as soon, he, I, I'm closing my eyes, I hold my nose, and he puts it, and as soon as it touches my tongue, I began to, I, I turned wider than I am now, so I was basically clear. Um, and I just projectile right toward him. I and he did that thing where it looked like he was trying to serve me something over a creek of volcanic acid where he's, body's like this, and he's trying to avoid getting thrown up on, and I said, that is not Robitussin cherry, it's not, and and then he said, okay, okay, I got this, and from the, why would you do that to me? And you know, we get in this argument, and so what Pete thought that he was offering me, uh, he thought, offer me the counterfeit, I wouldn't notice, and there wouldn't be any difference, but oh, how he was wrong. And he thought it would make things better, but it made things far worse for me and for him. And so, what you see in First John is John is defending the true gospel versus a counterfeit gospel. And John was afraid that his hearers in Asia Minor throughout the churches would be led astray by this counterfeit gospel. They were faced by false teaching called Gnosticism, who... These Gnostics were promoting a a gospel that said you could obtain knowledge by uh, religious or spiritual acts, and there's this knowledge would make you superior to other people. And so Gnostics were kind of like selling a drug or a high. You could avoid pain if you had this kind of knowledge that would make you sort of live on a different plane and you would avoid pain. So if you could take something that would make you avoid pain, that's kind of what it was. They were kind of, it seemed like like drug dealers. I mean, this is why the reason why people get drunk or high or they turn to something else. We want to avoid the pain in our lives. And that's what Gnosticism offered. Gnosticism said, this world is terrible. Everything uh, that has matter is meaningless. Everything on this earth is meaningless. It's only the spiritual that matters. So they're trying to bring you out of the world you live in and give you this superior knowledge that makes you feel like you're living on a different plane. But the problem is is wonderful as that may sound if we face pain to avoid it in that way the problem is it's not the gospel problem is it gives you hope in something that is other than Christ so what does John do well in first John chapter 2 he offers this hope in Christ he says Christ dies for the sins of the world because of Christ, we can come to God as our Father. Because of Christ, our sins are forgiven. And then he comes to a scene where he talks about these, uh, we saw this last week, these little antichrists, which are going to do what the future antichrist will do, which is basically to deceive people from believing in Christ. And so he's saying, in the same way that the antichrist is going to do that, there's going to be little and a Christ within the church that are going to rise up from within the church and they're going to teach a false gospel to pull people away from Christ. But John is going to show them how dangerous that is. People may flock to false teaching because they think they're getting healed or escaping pain, but what's happening is they only get sicker. And John is going to show us why clinging to the gospel is really our only hope. 1 John chapter 2, start with me if you will, in verse 24. This is what John says. He says, "'Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you.'" "'If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father.'" Now, what John says here is something that we have seen before. He refers to this thing that you have heard from the beginning. Uh, And what's John talking about here? Well, this is actually the hub of the entire book. He actually starts the entire book out by this idea of what you've heard from the beginning. So, look at what you will in, in 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4. He says this, "...that which is from the beginning." which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we, we proclaim also to you. So that you might have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John is saying this message that you've heard from the beginning. He's saying that here in chapter 2 as well. Cling to this message. Abide in this message to, where, to what you've heard from the beginning. And what is it? He says it in John chapter 1. It's, the, it's Jesus Christ who lives in the flesh and offers this relationship that we can have with the Father. Uh, interestingly enough, when John starts all of the the books that he has written. When he starts John chapter 1, for instance, he starts with this same idea. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then he goes down later on in chapter 1 of John's gospel in verse 18. He says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Same idea, same concept. He's saying, Christ came and humbled himself as a man, and he offers a way, the only way, to the Father. Then he goes even in Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, another book that John has written where he's getting visions from what happens at at and after the second coming of Christ. And then in Revelation chapter 1, he says this, verse 1, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show us, his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of his prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written For the time is near. What is he trying to say? John saw Jesus. And Jesus offers this hope in the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. The one who came in the flesh is the gospel. And so he starts these books to show us and demonstrate. His point is, I want you to trust Christ. I know Christ, and I want you to trust Christ. That's what he's saying. Seen him in the flesh. Seen him with my own eyes. John, the baptizer, saw him in the flesh. Saw him with his own eyes. Jesus can be trusted. And then he's going to go, and he's going to say, uh, and even Revelation chapter 1, he's saying, you can believe in his word, and you can dwell in it. And so, it's very simple, we see the Gospel of John and Revelation, and we see it here in chapter one. He says, uh, in chapter one, verse one, and also chapter two, verse twenty-four. He says, "Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you." He's saying, "Let the gospel dwell and abide in you, believer." The gospel is sufficient. The gospel is our encouragement. Don't move away from this old message. That's what John's saying. Now, many of us in this room know this, but we have to understand how difficult it was in John's day. And it's even become more difficult in our day. Think about this for a moment. There are people. Who would have? This would have been the second generation of churches, and it would have been people that would have heard the gospel and and knew people who met Christ face to face. But then they they knew that yes, Christ offers this blessed hope. But then they would have seen uh, a second wave, and they would have heard all kinds of things said about Jesus that were not true. And so there's this tendency in all of us to think new equals better, new equals better. And and still today, I still think we struggle with this idea, new equals better. Just because something's new, we often think that it is better. And if you don't believe that, you've never gotten into a which smartphone is better argument with someone. Because when you do that, it's... People will often say, okay, oh, oh, that's an iPhone 6. Which one? What do you mean, which one? It's a 6, right? Is it a 6SG4S9 or 4S7? It's like, I don't know. It's a 6. This one's a little bit longer than the other one, so it's a 6. That's all I know. But if you ever meet with someone who's got a, a, a competing brand, there's this thing of like, Let's try to race. Let's Google search this and see which one's faster. Does your phone, how many apps does it have? Is it military grade? Can it read and pick up sonar? Can you make calls from space? Because mine can. Well, the agent who sold it to me said I could, I mean, but I, I can, okay? And so you get into this kind of okay, newer is better, faster, more efficient. We think that way in America. I mean, I've even heard people when the new Apple Watch is coming out, I've talked to people already. Are you gonna get that? Well, I'm gonna wait until the first one comes out so they can fix all the glitches and then I'll get the new one. So they're already making a plan to get something newer before the newest thing comes out. That is exhausting. But that is how we think we think newer equals better and that's how we think in our culture but john is saying just the opposite john is saying this old message that you've heard from the beginning yeah it doesn't get any better it won't get any better nothing will ever trump this message of the gospel that you've heard from the get beginning there's nothing greater and john says this in chapter 2 verse 24 he says If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son, and the Son in the Father. This is very consistent to what he said in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, if we have fellowship with the Son, we have fellowship with the Father, and we'll have fellowship with others. This is the exclusivity of this message. It's Christ and Christ alone. There's no way to God except for through Christ. And then John says it like this in verse 25. He says, And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. John says that not only does this message cause you to abide in him, but it also offers you this life forever. Throughout John's writing, he equates eternal life to Jesus. He says it in 1 John 5, we'll even talk more extensively on eternal life, but 5.11, he says, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's saying Christ gives us eternal life. And, I, and, and John inserts this not to really... Uh, talk about eternal life at length he's going to do that in chapter five but he inserts this to show us what is at stake here when we talk about false teaching most of the time we say it's really not that big a deal they're just a little bit off it's just a little bit false but it's really not that big a deal john's just gonna john's gonna say no it what is at stake is eternal life If you abide in him, you have eternal life. If you walk in Christ, you will have eternal life. But if you get a false version of that, you will not have eternal life. So this is what is at stake. But notice what he says next. Verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you've received from him abides in you and that you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything that is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, John has already introduced this idea of where true knowledge comes from. Verse 20, he says, you've been anointed by the Holy One. You have all knowledge. And what he's doing is John's setting up this idea of, so Gnostics, these false teachers, they would have had to work for their knowledge to this religious or spiritual practice. But John says, no, knowledge comes from the Holy Spirit of God. If you've been given any knowledge of truth in this room, It's because the Spirit of God has given it to you. Yes, you may have received it from a teacher, but it's the Spirit of God that has awakened your soul to accept this truth. And I have to, as a believer in Christ and as someone who's been in ministry, I've been in ministry for about 15 years, studied uh, multiple years in school to study theology, Bible, all these things. And I have to remind myself that the knowledge that I have does not come from my pedigree or the plaque on my wall that says I went to a Bible school. No, the knowledge that I have has been given to me by the Holy Spirit of God. And I cannot take credit for any of it. Yes, I worked hard in school. Yes, I had wonderful professors to teach me the Bible through school. Yes, I've had people disciple me throughout my life and kind of walk me through sound doctrine, but the knowledge that has been given to me has been given to me by the Holy Spirit. Anything true about this word has been made true in my soul because the Holy Spirit has enlightened me to see it that way. And we must understand that this morning because I really, being at a Bible college, I can tell you right now that the most annoying people in the world are Christians who are puffed up with biblical knowledge. They're the most frustrating people in the world. And you get the prayer request that's not a prayer request, but it's called, we call them a bragamony. Right? pray for me, I'm sharing the gospel with someone, and I walked him through the book of John in Greek, and now he understands. And it's like this, is that a prayer request, or is that you talking about yourself? Like, but in college, I see it all the time. Pray for me, I'm preaching a revival this week. Pray for me that I exegete God's word clearly. And it's, it's like, that wasn't a prayer request. You want us to, you know, I want to do like the 80s football clap. You know, the slow clap and because that's what happens. We get knowledge and it, it, will, it will puff up if we're, not, if we're not seeing it rightly. Now, I think it's vitally important that we have sound doctrine, but being theologically accurate and being theologically proud are two completely different things. Being theologically accurate causes us to know him rightly. Therefore, we become better worshipers of him. But being theologically proud, it it, it places the attention on us and not on Jesus, which defeats the entire purpose of knowing him. It wipes it away completely. I'm going to know this, so I'll take attention away from God and put it on me. That is the opposite of why you pursue holy living and right understanding of God. Your theology should lead to greater humility And if it doesn't, you you have an inaccurate view on that which you claim. Greater knowledge of God should lead to greater worship of God. And greater worship of God should lead to greater humility before God and before others. So, yeah. Yeah. It's good to have knowledge. It's good to be theologically accurate. We must be theologically accurate so that we might be better worshipers of him. But it should not puff us up in a way that we look down on others. And John is going to say, if you have been given knowledge, it's because the Holy Spirit of God has enlightened you to the truth of his word. And then he's going to say this. You have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, don't misunderstand John here, all right? John is not saying that you don't need discipleship, you don't need a preacher in your life because you are this anointed person. This passage does not say you don't need a church, okay? So I think people can read this and go, see, I don't need to go to church, I don't need a teacher, I don't need to be under authority, I don't need to listen to anybody, I'm anointed by God, I I can have church at home and read the Bible myself, and the Holy Spirit will just give me the message. No, biblically, you must um, be under biblical authority in your life in order to grow in your relationship. This is one of the tools that God has given you is sound preaching and being a part of the local church. I mean, you can see it in the beginning that John writes in chapter one. He says, if we have fellowship with God, it must lead to fellowship with others. So God wants us in community. God wants us to be taught well the Bible and to be in discipleship with others. People, So he's not saying that, uh, he's not going to sweep those ideas away in one verse that you don't need church. What he is saying, his point is basically taking a shot at these false teachers. He's saying that you don't get knowledge from some ritualistic or spiritual practice. You got it from the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you don't need these teachers like you think that you do. If you ever have done any research or read up on religious cults, you will notice something about the way that the leaders, they're all about control. So how do they control their followers? Well, the crafty false teachers, they make their followers, they feel dependent on them. They have to have them in their lives. They do that so they can control their followers and and make them basically their minions, And John is countering that way of thinking. You're not reliant on these false teachers. He's trying to give them encouragement saying, dismiss these false teachers. If you have any knowledge, it's been given to you by the Holy Spirit. You are the anointed one. You must abide only in his word. And so that's why John, he's going to use this phrase over and over and over again. He's going to say, abide in him. You're going to see it in John's gospel. You're going to see it in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Throughout, he's going to keep saying over and over again, abide, abide, abide. And so John, and we've said this multiple times, this is why John uses this phrase, John doesn't know of a relationship with Jesus that doesn't lead to life change. So when, when John talks about knowing this message that these believers in Asia Minor heard from the beginning. He knows that this message leads to them doing a few things. We've seen it throughout First John already. A true believer will bear fruit. A true believer will endure. And John, when he talks about endurance and bearing fruit, he just uses this word: abide. So why does John use this phrase to describe our response to the gospel? Well, he took it from Jesus because this is Jesus' word to describe the way that we respond to the gospel. John would have heard Jesus say this to him and to the other disciples. And actually in John 14, gospel of John, John 14, Jesus Told his disciples how they'll keep his commandments. They're wondering, though, know, what does it mean to follow you, Jesus? And he's going to tell them, it's not through this legalistic ritual or practice that you do. It's really going to be done by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send my helper, the Holy Spirit. He's going to dwell in you, he's going to cause you to obey. And then in John 15, uh, Jesus is going to start to explain how, give this analogy that he's like a vine and we are like branches. And I want you to see this analogy played out because what Jesus says, John is basically, in in 1 John, he's basically reiterating what Jesus says in John 15. John 15 verse one, Jesus says this to his disciples. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Whoever abides in me and I in him for it is uh, for it is that bears for he is for he it is that bears much fruit there it is <laughs> Where am I verse uh, <laughs> 5 from part from me you can do nothing if anyone does not abide in me he is thrown away like a branch And withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. Listen to what Jesus says, that your joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Jesus says something almost identical to what John says in John chapter 1 verse 4 He says, I write to you this message that we've seen and heard from the beginning. We've seen Jesus, we've touched Jesus, we've experienced Jesus in the flesh. And he says, I'm writing to you that your joy may be complete. 1 John 1, verse 4, Jesus, and John 15, verse 11, says the same thing. Abide in me, abide in this truth, abide in the gospel, that your joy may be complete. And Jesus lays out a few things in that analogy of these branches. He's saying, uh, if, a, if a branch bear fruit, bears, fruit, it bears fruit, it's evidence that is attached to the true vine. It is just evidence. If you're growing in your relationship with Christ, if you're trying to walk in obedience and worship before God, it's just evidence that you know him. You're the real thing. And he's saying, if it doesn't bear fruit, it's not the real thing. It's it's not part of the vine. It's not attached to the source. And this is why Jesus says it in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. And the point that Jesus is making is that if we don't bear fruit, we we can't bear fruit or endure without him. We can do nothing without him. We can do nothing without the gospel. So why, John is gonna argue Why do we cling to anything else? Anything else outside of Jesus will not sustain you, cannot sustain you. This is what is at stake with false teaching. False teaching causes us to cling to a sinking ship and gives us no real foundation. So when we talk about false teaching, I think there's a tendency for us to think about Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, or some kind of strange cult, and we think, I'm not affected by false teaching. But you got to remember that he's saying that false teachers will arise from within the church. He's saying from within, from among us. That's what John's arguing in chapter two. So think about that for a second. What, when do we hear false teaching within our tribe of evangelical Christianity, we would say that grace is given to us by faith in Christ and Christ alone. We, would, we have no salvation outside of Christ and Christ alone. Who would, on paper, say that and still give false teaching? Well, I think it happens more than we are willing to recognize or admit and there's lots of examples I could use for false teaching that happens among evangelicals. But, but maybe let me just pose one for you this morning. I hear in American Christianity, I hear this message of self-esteem or entitlement. Of this idea of no one can stop you from achieving your dreams. You've got a dream. and Anyone who tries to stop you, they're wrong. You want a Porsche? You, should, you deserve that Porsche. You deserve that big house. You deserve that parking space. You're a son of the king. You deserve that parking space. Now, common sense says that when you play that itself out, that parking space probably belonged to an old lady, but you're duking her out from getting the parking space that she should get, but that's just another part of the story. But this idea of entitlement, it it plays into the way that we see God and we believe that we deserve X, Y, Z and that is why God created us. We're sons of the king. We deserve this dream. We're going to achieve this dream. No one can stop us. So let me just take that false teaching and let me put it in traffic. Let me take this idea of Entitlement, high self esteem theology, and put it in traffic. I'm not saying I want to see it get hit by a car, but I kind of do. But let's just say you are in traffic and you believe this way about God. You believe this way about why God puts you on this earth. And can I just say before we get into this, like I have road rage. Like I'm a redhead person. I and one of the ways I want to serve Greenville is offer better driving classes. Don't slam on brakes and then turn your signal on. It's simple. People slam on brakes here and then they turn their signal on. There's turn lanes and they're not made to be turned over. You merge into them. After you turn your signal on, you turn your signal on, you merge into the turn lane and then you turn. It's I don't know. No one ever does that here. I don't know why. Um, I moved here from Atlanta. People complain about the traffic. It's not near as, the volume of traffic is nowhere near what it was in Atlanta. But man, people, they just slam on their brakes, turn on their signals. It drives me crazy. But let's just say I'm in the car and I believe this entitlement theology and I'm in traffic. And I'm with those people that can't merge right and stuff and I'm, With that theology though, I'm going, I don't deserve to wait in traffic. I'm a son of the king. I deserve to be in the front of the line. I don't deserve to wait on this light to change. I deserve to be past this light. I deserve to push all of these other scumbags away and be at the front. Because I'm a child of... Of the king. I don't deserve to face this temporary suffering in my life. And it we began to think this entitled way, and it puts us in the front of the line, it puts everyone behind us. But what does the gospel do? Because what happens with that theology? Who's at the center, God or man? Man's at the center of that theology, not God. But what happens when we apply the gospel to that? Let's just take that same scene to the gospel. Let's take Ben Tugwell on Highway 11 at 512, and I'm frustrated. Well, the gospel says, I've been given all I have in Christ and Christ alone. The gospel says that I am a sinner and Christ died for me. The gospel says, I didn't deserve anything, I didn't even deserve a car. I, I should have walked to work. That's what the gospel says. The gospel says, I was given everything because I was given the cross of Christ, his shed blood, his death, his burial, his resurrection. I was given that. I was given eternal life. That's what John says. I was given eternal life. And I'm reminded of things like 1 Peter where he says that suffering is but a little while. This world is not my home. James says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Paul says that all things work together for, those who, for the good of those who love him and are called into his purpose. So the gospel's calling me out of this mindset of entitlement of what I deserve. The gospel totally changes the, the word deserved for me. The gospel says, Ben, you deserve hell. I've given you eternal life through Christ. And everything on this earth is a wonderful benefit, even if it's your suffering, because this world is only for a little while. Now, see what that just happened? See what just happened? There's a mindset of entitlement theology that's false teaching that puts you in a place of where you can't even endure suffering even if it's small. Because the the theology is centered around you. The gospel, it centers it not around you, but it centers it around Christ. And it lets you, your affections be drawn to him so that when you are in your darkest hour, you're not clinging to something that is a sinking ship. In your darkest hour... Will you have to face the false teaching that you've been taught of, whether it be self-entitlement, whether it be something about Christ that's not true or even Christ-less, it will not sustain you in your darkest hour. The only thing that will sustain you, the only thing that will matter in the end is what you believe about God and how you live it out in your life the gospel says, my grace is sufficient. The gospel says when you are weak, he is strong. He can be trusted, abide in Christ, in Christ alone. Truth is the only thing that will sustain you in your darkest hour. How you know him is the most important thing about you. So truth, the truth of the gospel causes you to abide. Don't cling to a counterfeit gospel. Cling to Christ. He is our only hope. May we be a people, Integrity Church, who abide in Christ, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit, help us abide and abide in you. Help us, Lord, as we live on this earth we await a better day but Lord while we're here on this earth help us to walk in truth and cling to truth so that we can praise you in all circumstances and Lord help us not to fall into false teaching because Lord we want to be better worshipers of you but we also want to walk this earth in your spirit and God I just pray that you would just give us the strength and the ability to do that. Give us knowledge that only comes from you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.